You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today we're speaking with a fixed income manager based in Toronto, Canada, and a global equity PM located in Melbourne, Australia, as they explain their respective views on the markets and how their specialties might overlap and be affected by large exogenous shocks. James Baron is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome, this is James with CASA with Alternative Thinking. This is Thursday, April 23rd. Today we're speaking with Nick Griffin with Monroe Partners out of Melbourne, Australia and Paul Sandu at Merit Asset Management in Toronto. Uh, we'll start with self-introductions. Uh, we'll start with you, Nick. Yeah, hey, James. Um, look, thanks very much for having us on. Um, so my name's Nick Griffin. I'm the Chief Investment Officer of Munro Partners um, here in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, Munro Partners is a global equity product um, that focuses on growth equities. Um, and, and the key difference about it versus most growth equity products is it's a liquid alternative, so it has the ability to... Um, to protect capital in difficult periods. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, so how do you define uh, growth? Like what's your, your way of uh, finding companies and, and choosing them? And what's your kind of universe? Yeah, so our, our universe is global equity. So any company that's listed in the world, um, we split it down into to areas where we see strong structural growth. So we try to find these areas of interest. So we're very thematic in that point. So we have roughly... 20 different areas of interest we're focused on. So things like e-commerce or cloud computing or diagnostics. These are areas of strong structural growth. Um, and so we know they've got tailwinds. And so we try to find the companies that are in those areas that will benefit from those tailwinds. And then their earnings will grow and their share price will grow. So ultimately, from our point of view, we just it's very simple. Uh, we just find companies that make more money every year. Their share price goes up. Um, sustained earnings growth is worth more than cyclical earnings growth. And the last bit that everyone misses is the market always misprices growth and its sustainability. Right. And how do you gauge that? Like if how, how much the market might be um, uh, mispricing the growth because there's there's a P multiples or, or something else that you, you use as a chance. Yeah, so it's a really good question. Um, <clears throat> so we have our own scoring system, um, how we score companies and generally mm-hmm. based on their growth, their leverage, the sustainability of the growth. Do they have controlling shareholders? What's the customer perception of their business? So there's a lot of things that go into the scoring system. And then the scoring system allows you to pay a potential premium versus the market or a premium. Um, and that get, and then, then we build our own earnings model. And our earnings model says the EPS is going to go from here to here. The multiple should be here. And, and that's how you price it. And, then, and a company has to be able to double within five years to get into our portfolio. Uh, that's sort of what we're looking for. So some pretty simple maths behind it, but, but it is backed mm. up by uh, and then one more, just on the portfolio. Like, so, how many positions? What kind of sizing do you have? Min, max, or, or and then benchmark. Yeah, so we have um, thirty to fifty positions. Um, generally, um, sort of thirty to forty long, and about ten to fifteen short. So we can short sell. Um, maximum positions ten percent. Uh, biggest position today is Amazon at eight percent. Um, but on average, it's sort of three to four percent, and about half that for the shorts. Um, benchmark, look, people can compare us to the equity index. We don't mind. Um, mm-hmm. Over the journey, we, we should beat it, and we, and we have. 
Um, but ultimately, we're trying to make you absolute returns. So our hurdle, our hurdle for absolute returns is has to be the equity equity return, not the equity market return. So there, we use the Canadian ten-year bond uh, plus three and a half percent, and three and a half percent being the the average equity risk premium over the last um, over the last fifty years. And so we need to achieve uh, that before yeah. we charge fees, etc. That's great, thanks. And on the uh, fixed income side, uh, let's hear from you, Paul. Yeah, I'm Paul Sandu from uh, Merit Asset Management. I'm the Chief Investment Officer here. Uh, Merit, Merit Asset Management was uh, founded in 2001. It's a firm that uh, focuses only on fixed income, and we specialize uh, specialize in uh, in credit. And is that uh, any type of credit? Like, do you have Govi? Uh... Well, we trade credit uh, across mm-hmm. the entire credit rating structure, so everything mm-hmm. from investment grade all the way down to high yield, um, and in general. Um, you know, our, how we're positioned. I mean, all of our funds can be positioned 100% cash, 100% credit, or 100% governments. Uh, so uh, we really focus on where we are in the economic cycle, uh, the credit cycle, uh, and uh, the interest rate cycle uh, to make our determination of where we believe the best uh, risk return is in fixed income. And our funds are therefore positioned uh, based on that in the, in the asset class and fixed income where we think we get the best risk-adjusted return. Right on. Um, and how about long, short? A, how do you uh, how do you tackle that and, and what maybe what percentage of that uh, is your your target book? Um, well, long short strategies uh, are about uh, about fifteen percent uh, of our overall book. We have about five five billion dollar five billion dollars in, in AUM. Um, so uh, and we've been running uh, long short strategies since since the firm was uh, uh, conceived in two thousand one, and we run long short strategies in uh, both investment grade. Uh, and um, uh, and high yield, um, so, you know, distinctly, you know, kind of uh, in, in separate buckets. Uh, but then we also have strategies that that basically uh, evolve right across uh, long short, right across the entire uh, credit rating structure as well. Right on. Uh, and then for the uh, let's talk liquid alts because that's something that's kind of near and dear to my heart because we were pretty involved with it for the six years that we went through its uh, just so-called gestation period. Um, so how has that been with your with your strategy? How have you seen um, advisors and clients uh, take to it or not? And did um, did it have any surprises uh, for you, or is, or is that something maybe that was more the the product manager side and not as much in the portfolio side? Yeah, like for for us, we've been running um, you know as I said, long short strategies and credit since two thousand and one. So obviously, they have been OM strategies that we've been offering. Mm-hmm. Uh, to our private wealth clients because we have a private wealth business within within Merit itself, and uh, to our institutional clients. Uh, so running running hedge fund strategies is nothing new to us. Uh, we actually mm-hmm. welcome the fact that the OSC finally got around to offering, uh, I guess what we would call or refer to as, um, you know, hedge fund strategies light to, to retail clients in Canada. Uh, we yeah. think it's an important part of of asset class diversification generally. So. Uh, so we welcome that, and um, mm-hmm. uh, since we've been running them for a long time, they're nothing new. It was just a matter of really deciding what we wanted to launch uh, when um, these structures were approved. Um, and what we decided to do, uh, which was maybe quite different than many others, is that we mm-hmm. um, we launched a strategy that essentially uh, is not focused on one specific asset class within, you know, for instance, for us, it was in credit. So we don't have a credit fund uh, per se or an IG credit hedge fund. We have a fund that basically our liquid all 
actually goes from one asset class to another in fixed income based on where we believe the highest risk adjusted return actually is. So it's basically, you know, we, we do the asset allocation mm. for the client. And if we think the best place to be is in governments, then the fund will be probably largely uh, positioned in governments. If we think that the best place uh, to, for risk adjusted returns based on the economic cycle or credit cycle or interest rate cycle is to be uh, um, to be positioned at high yield, and the fund will likely have a very high weighting high yield. So it evolves. Um, the the structure basically evolves and changes. We do the asset allocation for the client. So in other words, the client never has to worry about where they're going to get their best returns in fixed income. We do that mm-hmm. for the client as the economic and interest rate cycle and credit cycle changes. That's oh, cool. It's like a like a multi strat sort of thing, and you're kind of moving the risk around as as need be. And I, yeah, I know from the uh, the new rules it was like waiting for godot but it did finally come out and now there's uh seven odd billion there so that's great yeah james um, what we found in the past was that we were always telling our clients to move from one strategy to another you know this is when we had our om or om funds for for our mm-hmm. private wealth clients and as well as our um you know, institutional clients that so we'd be saying, hey, now you should be positioned in high yield. So move into this fund. Well, now you should be positioned in investment grade, move into this fund. So what we what we were able to do with when the liquid alt structure uh, was approved was just to say, hey, why don't we just launch one fund that allows us to do the asset allocation, you know, for the advisor, for the client, and then they never have to really worry about it. Well, that's a neat idea, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, if you had to change your strategy at all, but I guess you kept your same underlying strategies and then you just change the uh kind of the packaging around right right well we have we we have like a high yield hedge fund we have an investment grade hedge fund we have a short duration yeah. hedge fund we have a government hedge fund this one just combines all four of them basically under one roof right on and how about you nick uh for your um your long short strategy is it at all different from the one that you might offer to institutional investors that you're offering uh through the liquid alt uh, strategy over here in canada yeah, so yeah, thank you, and, and and similar to what Paul said, I mean, we've actually been running these. So the reason why you're talking to someone from Australia is because in Australia these products have been legal for a very long time, um, and so <laughs> we've been running a liquid alt strategy for 15 years, um, and 10 years mm. at our previous firm, or 11 years at our previous firm, and now four years at Munro Partners. Um, and these products are very popular down here. They're very popular with retail investors. Um, because they're, they're, they're sort of a little bit more vanilla than your standard hedge fund in the fact that they just try to capture equity market upside and protect the downside. And so it's a very popular asset class down here, particularly with retail investors. So we run, I think, 1.3, 1.4 billion Canadian dollars now. And the vast majority of that is retail mm. investors um, and generally people over 50 who, who want to be in equities or, or, or even growth equities in our case, but they don't want to... Really? have to deal with the cycle of, they don't want to have to deal with, you know, the big drawdowns that, you know, they like to be told, they don't want to be told if they wait 20 years, the equity market will come back or 10 years, the equity market will come back. <laughs> They're generally in retirement. So, so that's why we call them in Australia, we call them absolute return funds. The goal of the fund is to do 10% per annum after all fees mm-hmm. and expenses on a three to five year investment cycle. So you don't do it every year. Um, and we've done that now actually for 15 years. So we average 14% per annum in our previous firm. And we're doing 13.5% per annum at Monroe. Yeah, I remember when I was there a few years ago and I and, uh, started talking with the liquid alts that were coming through. And um, and people said, oh, yeah, we've been doing that here for years. Like, you don't know what, what, what what's the big deal. And then uh, I actually mentioned that to the regulators. And they said, yeah, we're not going to be, do, be like Australia uh, immediately. But, yeah, it's going to be different than 
the old uh, the old regime mutual fund. So it was interesting that uh, I hadn't even heard about the stuff you guys are doing down there. It's been fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, just to make so you, about, give you give you a big color there, which um, just to give you an idea, but you know, the minimum investment allowed in our fund is twenty five thousand um, dollars, and it, and 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 it's daily price, so it comes in and out every single day. So it's it's a wow. it's a different product to your standard hedge fund, and and look, we've been as I said, we've been running these products for a long time. And so to come to Canada and fit into the liquid alts rules, we actually had to change nothing. So we're running exactly the same strategy in Australia that we're running in Canada. Um, and so we do the trades exactly the same. Very cool. So how about the, the topic du jour from your uh, perch uh, looking, well, I shouldn't say looking up because there are Australian maps that show Australia on top, but uh, like looking at the rest of the world and the investor markets, how has the COVID crisis affected that? And maybe, I haven't heard, actually heard what's been happening in Australia. Uh, I guess it is summer there, or it's going into the fall, which is like would be flu season. But what what's been happening in Australia with with uh, COVID and and the market gyrations and such, and with portfolios? Yeah, so look, we're a global equity product, so we don't do Australia specifically um, um, unless we find something we really like here. Um, but Australia, look, Australia's probably done better than most in the COVID crisis. I think we've, you know, we're averaging only a few cases a day. It uh, doesn't mean we're not all locked down, though. So we're all locked down. Um, and so for, and the markets have obviously been weak. Um, just globally, from a fund point of view, um, markets have obviously been very weak. Um, our capital protection tools sort of helped us out a lot in the first quarter. So so the fund's actually up this year. It's up, it's up nearly 10% for the year now. Um, and it was up sort of 5% in the first quarter. So, so while our long equities obviously went down, um, we were able to counter that with short equities and hedging. Uh, the only other thing I'd say is as growth investors, we've been very heavily invested in technology. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I, I, I'm going to be clear, I didn't expect, you know, the virus to come along and keep us all locked in the house and have to use software in the cloud and technology alone. But that's that's what's happened. Um, and so most of our stocks have relatively, all the, the long stocks we've had at least have relatively outperformed as well. And that's sort of your Microsofts, your Amazons, uh, your service now, your software companies, your e-commerce companies, your, your semiconductor companies have done quite well. Yeah, and you said Amazon's about eight percent, so that's uh, that's a big win there. How about so? What do you say? Capital protection tools is that you mentioned shorting and hedging. Are you using a fair bit like of, of derivatives uh, or or like options or well, what do you use to protect capital for investors? It's similar to what Paul said. I mean, we, we sort of do the asset allocation for the clients. So we sort of try to tell the clients, this is the sleep at night fund for you. You, you know, you get to sleep well and, and we get to sleep badly. Um, and that's sort of what happened through March. So yeah, we were using, um, so there was short selling. So just companies we don't like that we were shorting. So to give you an example of for the March quarter, I think our long book lost 12% and the equity market lost 20%. Um, our short book added 7%. So things that we were shorting and our hedgings added another 7%. Um, and the hedging, when we're talking about hedging, we're talking about either using futures. So you can just short NASDAQ to protect your yeah. own portfolio. Um, you can buy put options, which we did. Um, um, we bought put options on the S&P and the NASDAQ and a number of other indices. Uh, those are the main things we're using, sort of very short dated put options and, and shorting futures. And that's just a case of saying, look, so it looks like something bad's about to happen here. Let's just try and hedge the portfolio for a period of time. Um, and yeah, all of those hedges we've now taken off. So that we took all those hedges off in the last week of March. Um, and you're sort of back to a, a portfolio that's sort of 60 to 70% long equity markets and, and long the things we really like. 
Okay. And how about you, Paul? Um, what uh, credit markets have been rolling as well? Uh, what sort of uh, kind of dislocations did you guys see, or maybe opportunities, and uh, and how did you use hedges, if any, or, or managed duration, or what, what what kind of happened the last uh, four to six weeks for you? Yeah, well, you probably saw what happened to to valuations and credit in in March. Um, we had obviously just like many other asset classes, pretty significant and swift drawdowns. Uh, in high yield, uh, we went from about a spread of under five hundred to over a thousand in three weeks. Uh, in the U.S. investment grade market, I think uh, credit spreads uh, widened about two hundred and fifty basis points. I think that was the the worst one month uh, perform a negative access return performance ever in the history of the IG market in the US. So clearly there was some uh, pretty significant dislocations uh, quite quickly. Um, we, I mean, I guess the, the best hedge, James, uh, in, in our view is, is is not to have any exposure. Um, that, that usually works mm. pretty good uh, or pretty well um, most of the time. And, and um, you know, our liquid alt, uh, which is a credit liquid alt, uh, virtually had no exposure to credit uh, going into the month of March or actually really starting this year um, at all. Um, you know, we had maybe about a three, three or four percent um, weighting in credit. Uh, and the reason for that is we thought valuations in credit coming into 2020 were absolutely absurd. Uh, we, you had, if you think about investment grade, uh, actually in high yield as well, uh, you know, we came into 2020 with pretty much the tightest credit spreads in high yield and investment grade in history, and mm -hmm. corporate corporate leverage uh, was almost the highest in history. Uh, so we just felt that that was a really bad or very poor risk reward uh, for our clients, and so we reduced, uh, you know, in liquid alt, uh, we you know we reduced our exposure uh, completely to to credit uh, with you know with a with a minor. Uh, you know, three or four percent that was actually unhedged uh, in, in all short dated. And the rest of the fund uh, was all government bonds. Uh, so you can imagine, you know, given what 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 happened um, in, in the last six to eight weeks, uh, how the fund has has performed. Uh, it's performed very well, having that exposure uh, to 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 government bonds. Uh, we have now subsequently, as I mentioned earlier, this is a strategy that we can rotate into fixed income. Uh, you know, any class of fixed income that we believe will provide the be best risk adjusted returns. Uh, obviously, with that massive correction in valuations uh, in uh, in March, uh, we felt it was appropriate to start increasing credit exposure uh, in the liquid alt, uh, which we have done uh, with a combination of both high yield and investment grade. Uh, and uh, we have we've added about 30 percent exposure to the liquid alt uh, over the last uh, five or six weeks. We started buying fairly early. Uh, but we we didn't want to spend all of our bullets all at once. We do believe that there's going to be a lot of market volatility going ahead. Uh, mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we're going to save some bullets for, for opportunities as they present themselves, uh, you know, day by day uh, and over the next number of number of weeks and months. Uh, but on, on the hedging side, uh, you asked, you started the started the, with that question. Um, yeah, having no exposure, usually a good hedge. But, uh, you know, uh, that, that having been said, uh, the how we hedge in credit generally is through credit indices. So, um, you know, I think I'm sure you're familiar yeah. with those. Uh, obviously, government bonds, but typically in credit, when credit spreads are widening, uh, something else is usually going the, the other way, and that's the, that's government bonds. And so typically, we'll hedge with uh, with U.S. Treasuries and, and usually long U.S. Treasuries. 
Uh, we do do hedges in, in equity index uh, for the overall portfolio from time to time. It's not something that we use. We use in, indices, credit indices and gubbies way more. Uh, and then from the time to time, we may use uh, a single name in, in equities as well as a as a potential short position uh, against a long position in in credit. Uh, and mainly, that's that's that that tends to happen in high yield more than it does in investment grade. Wow, you got tons of arrows in your quiver there. That's uh, that's good to hear. That so we, it always seemed like we we saw this movie before in two thousand eight, but everybody just kind of kept on dancing, and then things kind of really unwound violently. And you had that here too, but it's good to hear that. So folks, uh, you know, got the old playbook and said, "Well, maybe we're not going to have that much in that risk-on trade." And you, you've, uh, you actually answered part of my question too. Is like, how do you get back in? Because, um, and we'll, we'll maybe start with Paul. And we'll go to to Nick too. But again, the equity markets, it, things were, went up insanely last year, and then really just didn't just pull back to where we were in December or something like that. Um, uh, I'm kind of a macro guy, but. Uh, you know, like when if thing if things are still how's how's the bond market is it, are things priced fairly cheaply or just uh, is there another shoe to fall here? Well, in bonds, I mean, we have corrected uh, a reasonable amount, right? I mean, if you look think about those uh, numbers I gave you earlier, a thousand spread on high yield, two hundred and fifty basis point widening in IG, um, you know, high yield uh, has retraced from over a thousand spread. Uh, it, it got tight as about 750 last week. It's probably around 800 now. So you know, it's, you know, let's assume you know it's come in 200 basis points uh, in investment grade. If you look at the U.S. market, uh, that 250 basis point widening that we got has probably retraced about 60 percent uh, in Canada. That retracement in Canada, in Canada and Europe, that retracement is probably about 50 percent in 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 the, in the investment grade credit markets uh, thus far. Um, so, you know, yes, we've retraced a fair, a fair amount, but if you just think about, um, you know, some of the uncertainties that, that are out there, you know, whether it's the economic data, we saw some pretty weak economic data today and all these purchasing uh, PMI manufacturing services numbers uh, across, uh, across the world. Uh, you think about the earnings numbers we're probably going to get, which are going to be pretty weak. Uh, you think about how the, tr the economy eventually transitions back to some level of normality. Uh, you think about the the, the virus and its progression uh, as well, because it seems to be kind of coming back a little bit in some places. I think all that oh, yeah. uncertainty probably means that we're going to get some more volatility ahead. So, um, as a result as, as a result of that, although we've had a pretty decent retracement for which we've been able to take advantage of because we were able to increase our exposure to credit very very early um, uh, in 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 this uh, in this drawdown, uh, I, I think there's going to be continued opportunities over the over the next few months. Very good. And uh, Nick, with your global portfolio, you can be pretty much anywhere. Um, what uh, are there are there spots of opportunity that you're seeing here, or is it uh, are you are you kind of standing pat for a bit? No, so no. We like Paul. We also, you know, like I said, we closed. We actually never really changed the underlying portfolio. So our underlying portfolio has been invested in very big structural themes for a long period of time. Um, and, you know, we, we continue to like those structural themes. So I think our top 10 holdings didn't change. Um, and so what we did was just hedge and then unhedge effectively um, and obviously right. short sell and then close shorts. Um, so net exposure has been increased significantly from the lows, um, but it's still not, like Paul, not fully invested. We do still think there's a few opportunities to come and, and clearly volatility 
is likely to continue. The one thing I would say um, in terms of where we've invested, most of our money's in the US because uh, we like tech a lot. So, so whether we discussed Amazon, but we also own, sorry, Alibaba in China or we own cloud computing mm-hmm. companies. So ServiceNow, uh, Adobe, anyone in the software stack we like right now, a lot of semiconductor companies we like right now. Um, and what's interesting, I think this time versus last time, in the S&P 500, and I think a lot of people are a little confused as to why the S&P 500 is doing so well, and and it, it does, on, at least on the surface, look different. But it's important to remember that the, the downturn we're seeing is very much going to affect small businesses and the economy. Mm. Um, and these are the people who, unfortunately, are going to suffer here because they just don't have the balance sheet to get through it. Um, yeah, yeah. And what the Fed has done to lower rates is going to help that high yield and some of these other things that, that Paul was talking about. But ultimately, it's just a free kick to these to these big companies that have great balance sheet and can access credit markets. And so, so the the winners and losers that we had in the world actually accelerate in a post COVID world. Um, and then when you look at the S and P five hundred, you know it's just completely different to what it was in two thousand eight. Um, the biggest company in the world in two thousand eight was Exxon, um, mm-hmm. and there was three banks in the top ten. You know, you can't find there's one oil company in the top twenty today. Uh, there's none in the top ten. There's no banks in the top 10. Um, wow. There's only four retailers in the top 20, and they're Costco, Walmart, Home Depot, and Amazon. Um, so when you actually look at the specifics of the companies, you know, most companies are actually probably going to be, not this year, but in the long run, better off because of COVID, um, which means their earnings will grow over time. Um, and they'll take and what they lose in the economy, they'll take in shares. So there are some nuances under the surface that people should look at when they just look at stocks like we do. Um, and sometimes just looking at the big index and trying to compare it with what happened last time um, isn't necessarily correct because it's, it's, it's a slightly different crisis this time. That's interesting. Is there, is there any area, of course, you love tech, um, any areas that you, you, you were kind of looking at before and now with the, the COVID crisis, um, so this is X-Tech, <laughs> that you go, oh, wow, that's something. I'm going to take a serious look at that and maybe... Uh, look to add it as you go forward or is it has it really just been like exactly the same story as say six months ago except that uh, you know valuations have changed a bit so on the tech side it's pretty much the same story as it was six months ago Um, valuations have changed a bit some of them will do worse like for a little while but ultimately the structural shifts to e-commerce or the cloud probably accelerate here Um, in the non-tech side um, again with you know a little bit lucky here from our point of view, but we've always thought that diagnostics was the weapons manufacturer in the healthcare war, so to speak. And so, right. um, so we had big positions in things like Thermo Fisher or Danaher or Abbott. Um, and we've always felt that diagnostics was the way of doing preventative medicine. So it was a way of saving cost. Uh, but what we see now is obviously diagnostics is going to be important to just getting back to a normal way of life. Um, so testing, testing, testing. And so these are the companies that benefit from testing. Um, you could also add in people who build um, heat monitors, temperature monitors, et cetera. So this is a really, really interesting area, for, I think. Uh, it was an interesting area before, and it becomes a more interesting area today. That's probably the big one. The only other one that we, we've always liked, um, which I'm sure we can all have some, some uh-huh. a feeling with now, but we've always liked, you know, sort of premium products or premium goods. And so we used to express that with luxury goods, but they're looking more difficult here. But also premium spirits, mm-hmm. so premium alcohol. Um, people, you know, shift to more premium alcohol over time. It's very resilient in a crisis like this. I'm, I'm sure we've all felt that resilience in the last few weeks. Um, <laughs> and, so, um, 
And so from our point of view, yeah, a lot of these companies have sold off quite a lot and they're really in pretty good shape. Um, and the world I know hasn't opened up, but it will open up. And so the last thing you can do is find businesses that things haven't really changed in the long run um, and just go forward and value them on 2021 earnings. And yes, it'll be slow to open up and yes, there'll be bad things happening, but ultimately they're very strong franchises that will win in the long run. Um, and we'd point you to the alcohol companies first, but we could we could point you to a lot of others. Well, point me to the alcohol. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I always thought it was a guns or butter thing with the hand sanitizer, but then I understood that a vodka company was giving away hand sanitizer with its bottles because it's like a byproduct of creating alcohol. So that's uh, yeah, it's guns and butter. This is great. Um, how about you, Paul? Is there any kind of like industry themes in your portfolios, or is it, uh, or maybe there's a uh, trade structure? Or is it more just uh, working with duration and and the shifts from gummies to cash to high yield and that? Well, it always starts, I think, um, with with valuations. Um, so you know, valuations and credit, whether it's investment grade or high yield. So you know, our our exposure, uh, how much exposure we're taking, how much risk we're taking, yeah, you know, will always depend on that. Uh, but you know, within the context of you know of COVID, uh, I would say, uh, as I think Nick has already said, in, in some respects, is that. The focus for us, you know, we 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 started, uh, you know, basically from a position of having virtually no credit risk uh, for a credit, <laughs> a liquid alt strategy, uh, you know, when the drawdown, you know, you know, given that, you know, during the drawdown, um, and so post that, okay, if we're going to start adding credit, uh, you know, what are we going to focus on? Um, you know, we're going we're going to focus very very clearly on balance sheets. Uh, so companies that you know are a bit more are obviously are virus proof if, if there are some. Uh, companies that have high levels of liquidity, uh, you know, strong cash flow and, and low cash burn, right? Because uh, that that's a pretty critical thing at the moment. Um, we uh, we interestingly enough in, in credit, um, you know, we we wanted to focus on high high quality balance sheets. Uh, you know, in, in March, uh, you know, during uh, sort of the first couple of weeks of March, you know, the baby got kind of thrown out with the bathwater, so everything widened out, uh, you know, s- simultaneously and, and all together. Uh, and then that was an opportunity to sort of say, hey, everything is widened out. This does actually doesn't make any sense. There are some great companies uh, that are virus proof, that have great balance sheets, that are high quality, uh, that have lots of liquidity, uh, have good, great, will still have great cash flows and low cash burn. So we want to focus on those. Uh, so that's, and, and the other thing that we, wanted to, we focused on pretty quickly, um, you know, you know, in, in this COVID era uh, has been, you know, kind of the front end uh, initially uh, in credit. Uh, you might recall, James, that uh, credit curves became inverted, right? So, and, and you know what yeah. that basically tells you is that you know two-year the, the the spread on a two-year corporate bond was actually higher than the uh, the spread on its ten or thirty-year uh, you know maturity, uh, and we felt that that was a very significant dysfunction in the market. Obviously, it was caused by aggressive outflows, uh, leveraged funds who had to sell. Um, you know, due to due to redemptions, uh, and so you sell short stuff where you think there's liquidity, and so then credit credit curves became very inverted. So we focused on so, sort of looking at the two to five year sector, going, hey, credit curves are incredibly inverted. Some of this stuff is really cheap. Let's buy that for for companies where we think uh, you know mm-hmm. where we like the balance sheet, they're high quality, and we believe they 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 have sustainable long term businesses uh, that are less mm-hmm. uh, to to the to the virus. Uh, from an industry perspective, I guess within the context of that, uh, we we focused a lot on um, you know telecom, cable, uh, media, technology, uh, pharma, healthcare, and infrastructure. And what we were uh, what we've avoided initially uh, has been energy, 
um, and uh, travel and leisure sectors, uh, as well as, as as well as airlines. I mean, all of those latter ones will obviously be very very slow to recover uh, from uh, you know the healthcare crisis that we're undergoing at the moment. Yeah, that's quite the opportunity because I guess an inverted yield curve is called ten of the last eight recessions. And if you but if you rebind the short end, then you're probably not too worried. They're probably going to be able to be covering their their interest payments for at least the next year or so. That's uh, yeah, but again, the focus there has to be liquidity, right? So you have yeah. to really understand the liquidity of the company, and um, you know if they have liquidity uh, and if they have long you know long term sustainable businesses, you know you know like a like a cable company uh, or you know a you know a technology company. Uh, pharma mm. company, you're, you're you're not you're not too worried. What do you think of the credit rating agencies in this? Have they made any uh, quick moves on on ratings, or are they uh, taking quite a while? Or do you even care? Like, is it more you you do your own internal analysis for that? Yeah, we when we do all of our own internal analysis, but I mean, you know, we, we do care. I, I think in in 08, 09, you you might recall that the credit rating agencies came under a lot of fire. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and we, um, we see the movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And uh, so uh, I think this time around, uh, they were probably a little bit more quick to respond. Um, and uh, so I think, you know, they started reviewing sectors pretty, pretty quickly and, and started, you know, re-rating companies. So there have been a lot of downgrades. There have been a lot of fallen angels. You've probably seen some pretty big ones, obviously Kraft Heinz, Ford, Occidental, um, um, you know, are all fallen angels now. Um, and, 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 you know, there, there's, uh, there's, there's going to be eventually, well, there have been some defaults already and there's probably, probably going, going to be more. Um, so I, I think the credit rating agencies this time around probably be a bit, were a bit more responsive, uh, just given the criticism of 0809, but I, I will say that they, they really had to be, uh, because in our view over the last five or six years, as corporations have leveraged up and, and they've levered up either through M&A, you know, because of M&A. Uh, or you know because they're doing buybacks or they're increasing dividends uh, as corporations lev- levered up, it appeared to us that the rating agencies were giving everybody you know way too much rope, right? Like we're basically saying, oh yeah, no, these companies, well, you know, we can we can we we don't need to change the ratings on these companies because you know over the next three to four years these guys can deleverage, and we always felt uncomfortable with the fact that you know they were giving companies so so much room. Um, you know, within the context of a very, very slow economic environment um, and, and, and very high levels of leverage uh, when the deleveraging mm. uh, over that period didn't, didn't seem to really uh, make sense uh, or compute, with, compute for us anyway. How about in your book, uh, how far down the ladder do you go? Like you have high yield and then you go, like, do you do any distressed or is it mostly stuff that you can, that's not uh, like more than... Or at least at least eighty cents on the dollar sort of thing. Yeah, we we have one specialized fund for distressed, and and from time to time, depending on um, you know what happens in high yield, uh, we will launch or we'll focus. We might focus particular you know on on a on on distressed in a certain uh, industry or sector. So if you go back to two thousand fifteen, two thousand sixteen, we specifically launched um, a an energy hedge fund at the time. Uh, because the energy obviously got very displaced. You, you may recall um, at the time we were all, we were all, uh, uh, you know, surprised that oil was trading below $30. Now, <laughs> now we probably aren't too surprised. Now it's below negative 30. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, you know, oil went all the way down to 26 bucks, um, you know, in high yield, high, you know, the high yield index, as you, as you're probably well aware, is very heavily weighted in energy. It's probably the highest weight in the entire index. Um, so energy you know, got beat up pretty, pretty well. 
um, and uh, you know there were there were defaults. Obviously, lots of downgrades at energy. But we you know we we've been following energy companies in the high yield uh, world for for 20 years. Uh, we felt you know very highly convicted of which companies we felt could survive uh, within the context of that kind of pricing regime over a period of time. Uh, and so we did start a specialized fund then. And and of course, if we were start, if we were starting a specialized fund, then energy also became a more critical part to all of our other strategies at the time as well, just given the level of conviction we had. Uh, so, um, and, and last year, over the last couple of years, we, we started a distressed healthcare fund, um, given what was happening in healthcare in, in the U.S. Oh, wow. Uh, so we, yeah. will, we will look at different sectors, um, you know, in our world um, that, you know, whether they're distressed or whether valuations become, uh, you, know, uh, you know, incredibly compelling, um, you know, we, we will look at those sectors and we will significantly overweight them or start specialized funds for our clients to take advantage of those opportunities. Great. And back to, uh, back to Nick, speaking of conviction. So what is your advice to investors or, or, um, uh, capital allocators now, um, going forward, uh, when they're looking at the, the markets and just saying like, or, or if someone came to you and said, Hey, you know, I've, I've got this, I've got this money. Like, what well, should I just hold off or which is it a good time to get, get into these markets or, um, or should you should you lever up? What, what's your advice to them? Yeah, I mean the and I'm sure Paul would agree. The beauty of the the liquid alt structure is, um, you know, we take care of all of that for you. Um, so the market timing question is, you just give it to us, mm. um, and and we'll solve it for you. Um, and so there's a lot of people right now sort of trying to work out whether they jump in or jump out or or, or what to do. Um, yeah. I would just point out, I think what they should do is just realize, obviously, most of the bad news is out there. You know, the big shock event has happened. Um, there are some nuances around valuation. And obviously, we don't know if we're going to be able to reopen. Um, but, but what you should be doing now is just look at the guys who did well over the last cycle. So this is effectively the end of the cycle. You know, we've been through a bull market. Things got overheated. Things have come back. We've been through a bear market. And somewhere around here, the next cycle is going to start. Um, I don't know exactly where, but it's somewhere around here. And so what you should do is look at our product over, over a four-year time frame or, or look at Paul's product as what did they manage to do over the cycle? Um, and then, well, these are the guys I'm going to choose for the next cycle. Um, and then you give it to them and then you don't look again for another four or five years um, because that's the purpose of the product. Um, nice. and, I, and I know... And I know people want to have their hands on the levers of the controls, et cetera, but the purpose of the product is to hand over those controls to somebody else. Um, you pay a premium for that, by the way, uh, but that's actually what you're paying us to do. So, so you pay us to do that and, and you go back to doing what you do, which is really look after your clients or manage you know, which parts of the portfolio or which ones of these you want to choose. But after you've made that decision, I would just leave everyone alone now because because as I said, there are still a few healthy unknowns out there. I suspect, as Paul said, there's probably going to be some opportunities. But just don't get too hung up watching the market here. It's a washing machine. It's going to be a washing machine for a little while. Just know that that was the end of the first cycle, the end of the cycle, and there's another cycle beginning and, and work out who you want to be with for that next cycle. I like that. It's a washing machine. Like, who watches their washing machine? Like, no one does that. That's, that's cool. Uh, and how about you, Paul? Parting, parting words for the, uh, for the investors? Just like... Uh, by the fund, uh, fire and forget? No, I mean, we, um, uh, you know, we in fixed income, uh, given the, the very significant correction that we've seen in, you know, credit spreads, whether they're investment grade or high yield, 
uh, in fixed income, we like exposure to credit, you know, given the correction valuations. Um, but, um, you know, we, we, my, my advice would be uh, that we're one, as I pointed out earlier, we're going to get lots of volatility. Uh, there's way too many uncertainties uh, to, to out there, uh, you know, some of which we've mentioned uh, already. And, and, you know, you mentioned the credit ratings. That's going to be another uncertainty. You know, there are going to be further credit downgrades. There's going to be defaults, et cetera. Uh, a lot, oh, yeah. All kinds of volatility from earnings and, and bad data and so on. Uh, so our, our our view is yeah we like credit at these kinds of valuations uh, we think credit spreads eventually uh, given that, you know given the life cycle of the virus the way we see it will probably tighten further over the course of the next two to four quarters so they will provide a lot of alpha uh, in in strategies but the the focus for us is to, is to go slow uh, and and to be very tactical um, you know given the fact that we're going to get volatility yeah we've taken some exposure already we've increased our exposure to credit by over thirty percent. Uh, in most of our strategies, you know, since uh, since the third week of March, but we've also been tactical in, in the sense that we've sold stuff as well. I mean, there were there were high yield securities, uh, James, that were down uh, mm -hmm. from twelve to fifteen dollars that have rallied back twenty. And so when we see those securities getting back to fair value or full value, you know, we're 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 we're, we're happy to sell them and crystallize our profit as well. So I think you need to be yeah. really tactical uh, going forward, given that there's going to be volatility and there'll be opportunities to buy. But I think you should also take opportunities to sell to crystallize return. Uh, so our focus is, yeah, we like credit and fixed income, uh, but go slow. Uh, go with a manager who's who's done 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 well, as as, as Nick has pointed out, uh, and who through other cycles, past cycles, um, has has shown that you know they 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 understand valuations and they can manage well. Um, you know, in 08, uh, our high yield hedge fund was down three percent when the market was down thirty. Uh, so we we've seen this uh, we've seen this movie too before as well. Uh, and uh, we don't necessarily think this is the beginning of the kind of cycle that we had in two thousand and eight. Uh, I'm not uh, I'm not sure Nick would uh, Nick might disagree with me. So happy to have that conversation. But uh, you know we do think that this is a very good short term correction in credit spreads near the end of the cycle that you need to take take advantage of. Oh, that's great. Thanks. Um, well, I guess uh, I've, uh, I've really enjoyed having, speaking with you guys. Uh, thanks, Paul. Thanks, Nick, for making the trip up from Australia. And uh, we'll uh, look forward to having uh, the both of you on another podcast uh, sometime soon. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks very much, James. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, James. And Nick, uh, nice to meet you. Maybe we'll meet, meet each other face to face since we both, uh, we both kind of work for the same company. <laughs> we do. We do. We should, our paths should cross again soon, I'm sure.